The following recording was produced by Christ Redeemer Church of Hanover, New Hampshire. The speaker is Doug Cooper. You may find more information on the church and its various resources on the web at www.christredeemerchurch.org. Good morning. I'm reading from Galatians 2.20 to chapter 3, verse 6. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And now the life I and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing the faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This ends the reading of God's word. Thanks again, Felicia. Well, we're continuing on here in our series in Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia. And you might say that this morning um, that we're uh, shifting gears ever so slightly. We're just like turning a, a little bit of a corner here because many have uh, characterized the first two chapters of uh, the letter to the Galatians that we've already been through as Paul's personal appeal to the Galatians um, as it relates to the gospel. Um, which makes sense, right? I mean, he, he what has he been doing? He's been uh, t- he's he's been taking things personally. You could say that um, he's been appealing to the Galatians in very personal ways, uh, uh, raw ways. He's been pretty upset, you could say. Um, I think we're going to see a little bit more of that this morning. He's been sharing some of his own uh, personal back history. We got that in chapter 1. He's been sharing personal stories involving others, specifically Peter. Uh, We hear him speaking, we just sang of it, of uh, his own faith in Jesus in a very personal fashion, right? And on that last point, you can can see we've carried chapter 2 forward with us uh, this morning. Um, however, however, our main focus for today is going to be this first section of chapter 3 that we've got. And beginning in chapter 3 here, many have characterized um, this, chapter 3, as well as chapter 4, as Paul's theological appeal concerning the gospel. So in terms of tone, we're apparently shifting from a more personal approach by Paul to a more theologically driven approach. Now, so that's how people have characterized this, okay? (laughs) That being said, 
I'm not sure how much I completely agree with that. Now, I mean, we're going to have to, you know, wait it out and see how things go in the coming weeks, but at least as it relates to what we've got here, verses 1 through 6, this to me, anyhow, comes across as being very personal. All right? Very personal. For example, um, here's a, a theoretical. Let me just try to frame this for us a little bit. Let's just say that, um, you know, after, after we have our, our sermon, you know, we take a break. Let's just say during that little break that we've got, Maybe some of you are out in the hall, you're circled up having a conversation, and I, I stroll up to this little group, and I say something along the lines of, hey, you dummies, who pulled the fast one on you? Are you actually as foolish? Are you actually as thoughtless as you appear to be? Or are you just pretending to be this airheaded? Which is it? If I said that to you, which hopefully I wouldn't, Okay, I don't think that I would. But if I did, we're just playing pretend here, would any of you take that personally? I would think so. I mean, um, rightfully so, I I would say, uh, as well. Of course you would. But here's the thing. To a certain extent, what I said in my little theoretical thing there, um, this is the sentiment, to a certain extent, that Paul is expressing here. He's speaking to them just like that. Now, don't get me wrong, this passage, verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3, it is deeply theological. I'm just saying that it's, it's not just theological, that it's, it's personal. And along those lines, well, why? I think that we ought to ask the question, why? Why is Paul saying this? Why is he calling them foolish? He says it twice. This is no accident. I mean, surely this is intentional Surely he knows what he's doing. Surely he knows that what he's saying by using this word is coloring everything that is going along with it. And so what is he doing here? Why is he doing it? And we're going to get into this in much greater detail as we go through this message. But here's just a quick opening thought on this. Um, This is what came to my mind as I thought about this. And I was asking myself the question, like, why? Why is Paul... um, getting so provocative like this. Well, um, when you were a kid, tell me this, when you were a kid, did you have a parent in your life who would sometimes call you by your full name? Um, Including your middle name, by the way. Uh, So for me, that was Douglas J. Cooper, right? That's J-A-Y, by the way. My middle name is J-A-Y, so that was, that was my full name. And on certain occasions, uh, this would happen, and it would be my father who would say it to me. Um, uh, maybe I was, like, out and about, and he would, he would stick his head out the back window of our house. I lived in a suburban neighborhood, and he would put two fingers in his mouth, and he would whistle, and you could hear it all over the neighborhood. Everybody um, could hear him, um, and then... Following that, he would say, Douglas J. Cooper, you know, and um, he would say that uh, probably because I had another buddy whose dad did the same thing. He had the same whistle. So, you know, like he had to like distinguish, um, you know, who it was. And of course, the idea was what? The idea was you better get your butt home fast. You are. We got to talk. You're in trouble. And, of course, I walked home not fast. I would walk home slowly, thinking to myself, okay, what did I just get caught doing? Was it this? 
Uh, no, was it that? Well, I mean, based on like the decibel levels of his whistle and the tone of his voice, I'm guessing it was probably that, you know? Uh, so whatever it was, but you knew though, okay? You knew right away that something was most definitely up and that you were going to hear about it and that you had better, better listen up, right? Listen up, buttercup. Your antennas would need to be fully extended in this conversation. That was the message that came with that full name, all right? Um, and I think that we've got something like that going on here with Paul using the language that he's using. Paul's word choice, you might say, is setting the tone for everything that will come along with it. It's establishing the mood. It's meant to raise the antennas fully extended for the Galatians and for us. And so what is the message here? What's so important about what he has to say here that um, Paul is breaking out the verbal big guns, okay? He's like pulling out the trump card in order to make his point. And honestly, I think that there is a lot to, to, to this, him using this language. In other words, his use of this word foolish, it isn't mindless on his part which would be a word that you might use to describe somebody who's being foolish. It isn't thoughtless on the part of Paul, as much as you, it may sound like he's being like reactionary and just like shooting from the hip or something like that. I don't think that's the case. I believe that he has reasoned this through. I mean, he, it's a letter. He wrote it, right? These, these words were chosen carefully and wisely by Paul. I believe that's true. And so now... Uh, like children who's, who, who just had their names, you know, called out, full names through a window, I think that this demands our full attention as well, okay? And so what's the message? What's the point? Let's find out. Here's a bit of an outline for us. If you're taking notes, you can take these things down. So first, we're going to consider the essence of a fool, the essence of a fool. What sorts of ideas and characteristics, when, when Paul used this word foolish, what kinds of characteristics and, and ideas might Paul have had in mind when he said this? The essence of a fool. Secondly, a foolish exchange. So if Paul is on point here, if he's got their number, um, how have the Galatians actually acted Foolishly. That's what we'll, we'll cover there. A foolish exchange. And then lastly, the foolishness of the gospel. How does the gospel defy and mystify our own sense of wisdom? How is it like, how does it run contrary to the ways that we tend to think and operate as human beings? So one more time on those. The essence of a fool, a foolish exchange, and then lastly, the foolishness of the gospel. So to begin with the essence of a fool. Oh, foolish Galatians, Paul says, who has bewitched you? It's such interesting language. Now, if Paul is in fact being mindful and thoughtful and intentional here, like I'm suggesting he is, um, why this word choice? So here's what I did. I tried to investigate this as best as I could. I jumped into several uh, Greek word studies 
and um, saw what I could find out. Here's, here's just a few things that I think will hopefully help us to understand this just a little bit better. Uh, for example, one of the word studies that I looked at um, associated this word with being mindless, they said, or dense. I actually came across one that, that uh, used the word stupid, even. Um, so not very complimentary. And so maybe the example I gave of uh, the imaginary example of me calling people airheads um, might not be terribly too far off here. But here's some more. Um, this is this time. This is this comes with just a little bit more insight, a little bit more nuance. One writer described it as not reasoning a matter through. I like that. Not reasoning a matter through. Or even more specific than that, this this quote. Lacking intelligence, but demonstrating moral fault. That's an interesting one. I think it's very insightful. Did you get that? Lacking intelligence, but demonstrating moral fault. So in other words, it doesn't describe foolishness as being like just totally ignorant or just, you know, completely um, out to lunch. Rather than that, it describes someone who is not being very smart about something when it counts. Not being mindful, not being attentive about something of great significance, of great moral weight. Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish? He asks them. You understand, of course, that to call someone a fool like this, and especially in Paul's day, I think that this is true, <clears throat> this was a very provocative, very spicy sort of a thing to say to someone, and therefore it was a risky thing for Paul to say to this group of people who he cared about. And he says it twice. And so what is Paul doing here? Is he trying to run them off? I mean, you could see how you could run somebody off talking to somebody this way, right? Is he trying to run them off? Is he merely trying to insult them, hurt them, uh, simply embarrass them, something like that? And I really don't think that that's, that's the big thing here. Is he being provocative? Yes, he is. Is he being corrective? Absolutely. Um, that adds up. But even more so, I believe that he is trying to do so in a way that is instructive, to teach them, to impart, this is an important word here, to impart wisdom to them. Remember, Paul was a learned Jewish man. He told us this in the first chapter. And so I think we can assume that Paul would have thought about this, this word, in a very proverbial sort of Away. He would have been thinking of the Proverbs of King Solomon, for instance, when he said this. So how does the book of Proverbs portray the essence of a fool? This might have been in the mind of Paul. Okay? Well, the book of Proverbs, in case you don't know, um, it's a book of contrasts. It's a book of juxtapositions. It's wisdom literature. And so it's perpetually setting two things side by side. It's perpetually setting the wise man beside the foolish man. And it's interesting because it uses those things to teach us. It, it sets the wise man beside the fool and teaches us what a fool is like by showing us how the wise person lives and then in contrast to the fool, you see, and so on and so forth and vice versa. 
But if you want to understand some of the biggest differences between a wise person and a foolish person, look no further than the introduction to the book of Proverbs. If you haven't read it before, I would encourage you to do this. But here are just some quick cliff notes on this for the sake of time. It begins with several lines indicating that the biggest differences between wise people and fools have to do with their ears. Unlike fools, we're told that wise people listen. They listen. They're teachable. They're, they receive instruction, and in turn, they grow in wisdom. This is, this is how this book begins. And then in verse 7 of Proverbs chapter 1, before King Solomon begins to share his many wise sayings, for the next 31 chapters, he offers up what you might call the essence of a wise person. Well, what does he have to say? Um, in other words, what is the most, we should ask, what is the most critical difference between a truly wise person and a foolish person? Verse 7, listen, listen to this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So we're talking about reverence. We're, we're talking about awe-inspired mindfulness thoughtfulness, attention towards God. That's the doorway in, is what we're told there, into wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So to be foolish above all else is to be thoughtless, to not be mindful concerning God, to not listen to him, to not learn from him, to not take him at his word. In other words, when we don't take time to listen and learn about who God is and what God has done, it makes fools out of us. It makes fools out of us. And as we've been learning all along the way in this letter, as it pertains to the gospel, this work of listening and learning is never done. We've got like a leak, right? We've got a perpetual leak. I, I like the way that Lisa Harper put this. She's a writer and speaker. Speaking of the gospel, she says this, divine grace, the fact that a perfect God truly delights in a mistake-prone person like me is the wet soap of my theology. It's what compels me towards Jesus, and yet it sometimes seems to squirt right out of my grasp. Get it? You get what she's saying? It's really interesting. She's like, this divine grace, it's the very thing that draws me to Jesus, and it's the very thing that just like, where'd it go? I lost it. We don't hold on to the knowledge of the gospel very well, and clearly this is what's happening with the Galatians. It's as if the soap bar of the gospel has somehow, in the life of the Galatians, just like shot across the bathroom and like sailed into some deep, dark corner under a bureau or something like that, and they've lost it. Okay? They've become bewitched. They've become Fools, thoughtless fools, as it pertains to the gospel. And so what comes next? What comes next? Here's what comes next. In interrogation. In interrogation, that's what comes next. Paul is not being easy on these folks, not even a little, little bit. Like his, his spice meter, if he's being spicy in his language, his spice meter is like hard right, like all the way, like in the red here. 
But the question here is we come into our next point, and we are coming into our next point right now, is how does this happen? How does this happen? How do we slip into this foolishness that Paul has in mind here? Paul's about to interrogate them, right? So if we were, let's just say we were investigative reporters, okay? We're we're doing a lot of pretend things this morning. Let's say we're investigative reporters. How might we explain, if we were, the foolishness of the Galatians? How do we get this stuff wrong? Like, what does it look like? How does this happen? And so we just considered the essence of a fool. Now, a foolish exchange. In verses 2 through 5, we get, did you notice this? Nothing but questions. The whole whole thing through. I was not exaggerating. This is a full-on interrogation. One after the other, Paul just keeps hurling questions at them. And the thing to note about these questions is that they're all rhetorical questions. You guys know what a rhetorical question is, right? Meaning... These are not the sorts of questions that if they're asked of you, that you're supposed to try to answer. That's not what Paul is expecting here, okay? They are very spicy comments that are being given in the form of questions, and yet don't get confused. It's still an an interrogation. He's still drilling them. Notice how he starts out in verse 2. I don't know why, but I find this funny. He says... Let me ask you only this, all right? And then he proceeds to ask them five questions. Let me ask you only this, and then boom, five questions, okay? Um, I mean, you, you know how this goes. You've seen these sorts of things before. Anytime someone uh, says something to you like this, you know where this whole thing's going. You know you're going to be there for a while, okay? This is kind of reminding me of getting called home as a kid. You know exactly what you're in for. I've just got one question for you, except that it's not going to be just one question. It never is. And so this, yeah, this is, this is just like me with my, with my, with my dad. Um, but get this, though. There are five questions here, but they're all very similar. They're all very similar. It's almost just one question that's coming in five different formats. So what's at the heart of Paul's questions? Um, I believe that verses 2 and 3 right here hold the kernel of all the questions that he presents. So let's just let's look at these right now, beginning in verse 2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith? So it's a multiple choice question, you see? And there's, two, there's two, two options, two options. So here's your first question. Now your second and third question coming in verse three. Are you so foolish? Have you begun by the spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, so let's just stop right there. What's the question? What is Paul's investigative reasoning? Here. He seems to know the answers to our questions that we asked just a moment ago. You know, like, how does this foolishness business happen? What does it look like as it's happening? Paul seems to have the answers to our questions. And what Paul is trying to help them to see with his rhetorical questions here is that they've gotten things mixed up somewhere along the way. They've made a foolish exchange. 
Hence the name of our point. What do I mean? Well, let's try to decode this first rhetorical question. Let's see if we can break this down. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? And he's assuming that they know the answer to this question, right? So what's the answer? We've got two options. And let me just set this up. To receive the Spirit, so that we know what we're talking about here. To receive the Spirit is to be received, right? Is to be received by God himself. To be born again is how um, Peter puts it in 1 Peter chapter 1. To become a child of God is how John puts it in the Gospel of John chapter 1, right? It means that we're fully reconciled, fully restored to God, made one with God, and therefore we become indwelt by the Spirit of God. He abides in us. We abide in him. And so how does this happen, Paul is asking us? How did that happen, guys? It happened. How did it happen? This may sound like a funny way of putting it, but what line, what line do you need to get into in order for that, what I just described to you, to happen. Do you remember uh, Peter was out of line with the gospel? That's why I'm using this, this, this language. What, you know, what's the gospel line? Do we need to get into the works of the law line? Or do we need to get into the hearing by faith line? Those are our options. And Paul is assuming that their answer would be Paul... We know, we know that we can only be reconciled and received by God and become one with him by hearing with faith. We know, Paul. We know that. Come on. And by that, they would mean hearing the good news of the gospel of Christ. Hearing by faith. Hearing that he lived the life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died so that by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, they would be fully redeemed. Fully redeemed. And so now, here comes the second part of Paul's question, and you can maybe imagine his voice, you know, getting a little bit higher. <laughs> a higher frequency at this point. Paul says, are you so foolish? There's, that was my attempt at it. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? He's, he's like, he's got them coming down a funnel. What's he asking them? Or better yet, what's, he indirectly telling them. What's his comment? He's telling them, please explain to me this foolish exchange. If this all began with a radical act of grace and mercy on the part of God because you simply couldn't save yourselves, if that's where we started, explain to me why then have you moved on from that grace and mercy and have gone back to your old habits of trying to save yourselves. That's what we were talking about last week. Trying to justify yourselves. Trying to, you know, get God's favor through your performance. In a sense, um, if you would, let me put it like this. If you would consider yourself a Christian this morning, if you would say to yourself that you have been reconciled to God, forgiven and made one with him, not by anything that you did, but only by sheer grace, if you would say that that's how you got through the door, if you would um, say that, why is it that, and I'm assuming this about you, because I'm thinking that you're not all that different from me, 
Why is it that when you fall into some kind of a sin and you feel the weight of it, you feel the guilt, you feel the shame, you feel the burden of that sin on you, on your back, like a spotlight, why is it that you then feel inclined to somehow work your way back into the good graces of God? Why do you feel inclined to do that? And if I could say that differently, why do you feel that you need to atone for those sins? You might not like the way that I put it, that last part there. Kind of like, wait a second, those aren't the same things, are they? And this is why Paul is calling them foolish, I think. This is why he's calling them foolish. He's saying, if that's what you really think, if you really think that you need to do something yourself, perform in some kind of a way, beat yourself up for a few days, double down on your devotions, act in some way that you think will appease God, if that's what you think, then the soap of the gospel has shot out the window. You, you lost, you've been bewitched. Because what we're suggesting when we function in these ways, what we're suggesting when we function in these ways is that the sacrifice of Christ was somehow insufficient to fully meet our need. It got us in the door, but it doesn't possess the power to keep us in the house. That's what we're saying. That power to keep us in the house, we foolishly think, must come from us. And Paul says to that, you're a fool. If you believe that, you're a fool. Somebody's put a spell on you. If you actually believe that. It's as though we were in the works of the law line one day, and God said, hey, it's not going to work. That won't save you. You can't meet the demands of that line that you're in. It won't do. Come, please. Come. Get in the gospel line. Hear the good news. Receive it by faith. It has everything that you need. Everything's been done. And then somehow along the way, after delighting in the gospel line, we just find our way out of line. We get back into the law line. We get back into the law line. We think that the gospel line is only temporary. We think that it's the line that saves us, but that it's not the line that changes us. This is the reasoning of Paul here. We think that it's the line that restores us to God, but that it's not the line that continues this process of ongoing restoration in our lives. We think that the gospel line won't do that, that we got to get in the law line if we want to see that kind of action happening in our life. And Paul is saying, this is the only line to be in. It has all that you need for life and godliness. This is the line that you, that you should begin in. This is the line that you should continue on in. This is the line that you should finish in. Don't get out of this line. And we just, if you're like me, we just struggle to do this, to hold on to this. We struggle to tr truly understand it. We, we struggle to believe this gospel. And here's why. The gospel operates according to a pattern that is not of this world. That's why. And this brings us into our last point, the foolishness of the gospel. Here's how we think and operate. 
Tell me if this checks out with you, okay? If someone says to us, hey, pack up your bags, you're moving in with me. Somebody you know. I mean, not, nothing weird. Pack up your bags, you're moving in with me. You, you'll have everything that you need. Mi casa su casa. What's mine is yours, what's yours is mine. We're, get, we're throwing in together, we're going to have a shared life, and it all sounds too good to be true, like, whoa, man, this is just what I need right on time. And so we move in, and then what? Then what? We begin to earn our keep. That's what? Of course we do. I mean, that makes perfect sense. We don't, we don't want to be freeloaders. We don't want to unnecessarily burden anyone. We want to live and function in such a way that those who have welcomed us in never question their decision. Like, man, that was a bad idea. I don't know what I was thinking back there. We don't want them to think that. We want to prove to them that they've made the right decision, the right choice when they chose to invite us in. Again, that makes perfect sense to us. That, you might say, is wisdom to us. Anything less would be foolishness in our minds. And to a certain extent, that's true. But that's not the pattern of the gospel. That's the thing. Like, we're dealing with a totally different animal here. Because, and here's one reason why, that we have to understand this. It's because God doesn't need us. Do you understand that? He doesn't need you. He doesn't need a caretaker in his house. That sounds insulting, but keep listening. He doesn't need you. He wants you. That's why he invited you into his house. He wasn't like, man, I could cheer you. Some you know, dust bunnies are starting to clack. Uh, no. He invited you in because he wanted you. He wanted you in his house. He wanted to be with you. Do you understand? He's not a man. Listen to this quote from G.I. Packer. Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity, of your sinfulness. And I'm just going to say here, what he's getting at is like, God's no fool. Do you think he didn't know what he was getting into with you? Nobody can produce new evidence of your depravity, of your sinfulness, that will make God change his mind. For God justified you with, so to speak, his eyes open. He knew the worst about you at the time when he accepted you for Jesus' sake at the time that he let you through the front door. You understand? And the verdict which he passed then was and is final. He's no fool. Many of you have heard this from me before, but I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share it again. Um, the way that I, I often try to explain this to myself and to others is I think about my wife Leah. So when we got started, when we got married, I'm going into theoretical land again, right? There might have been two ways that that day happened, okay? There, it could have gone like this. <clears throat> Before we um, stood up at the altar to share our vows with one another, Leah could have pulled me aside and she, she could have said, hey, Doug, um, hey, real quick, there's something I need you to know before we go any further here. Um, I love you. I'm excited to be here. I can't wait to be your wife, 
but I just need you to know that I do have some expectations, okay? Um, you know, I really, I really, Doug, I really need you to be faithful to me. I, I need you, I, I've got certain expectations, and I, I, I need you to meet them. And by the way, I, I would like it if you would take the garbage out every Thursday, without fail. You got that? Can, do, you want, do you want me to write that down for you? Okay, now we can get married. That could have been one way. Or she could have pulled me aside and said, hey, Doug, I need you to know something before we go any further here. I know that you're going to hurt me. I know that you're going to fail me along the way. I know that you're going to forget to do all kinds of stuff that I really want you to do. I know that you're going to say things that are going to make me go in my room and cry. Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I could go on. But then she says, but I want you to know that I'm not going anywhere. I love you. I'm committed to you. To the end. Period. Take it or leave it, buster. Now, do you want to get married or what? Those are two, two same altar, same vows, same music, same desserts afterwards, but those two different dynamics create completely different motivations for why I would love her well, be faithful, serve her, care for her. And this is what Paul's getting at. He's saying, you're misunderstanding the underlying motivation that should be happening here. And by the way, that doesn't mean that we don't clean the house. It doesn't mean I don't take out the garbage. It just means there's just a completely different reason for doing what we do. I really like this quote from Brian uh, Chappelle, contemporary pastor. He says, the grace of the gospel stirs the chemistry of the heart, igniting a love for God that is our most compelling power for devotion in transformation. I'm just going to read that one more time. The grace of the gospel stirs the chemistry of the heart, igniting a love for God that is our most compelling power for devotion in transformation. When I hear Leah say, I'm not going anywhere. If it's working well in me, and it doesn't always, but if it's working well in me, it stirs the chemistry of my heart and it makes me say, I'm never going to miss a Thursday. That garbage is going out twice a week. I've got an incredible love here. I, I've completely lucked out. I just want to love her. Because I can't. Because she's not going anywhere. I'm not on a treadmill. Again, he doesn't need us. He wants us. As a wise man once told me, and we're going to see him a little bit later this morning, we think somewhere in our minds that we are holding on to him. We think with our greasy hands that we are holding on to him, that we need to hold on tight, that if we're not careful, we'll lose our grip, that we'll somehow lose him. Tell me something. I'm getting spicy now. Tell me something. Name one thing in your life that you can really hold on to. Name me one thing. We're trying so hard. Are we not? 
We're working so hard to make it all work, to protect all that we've made, to keep it safe, but can you really hold on with those greasy hands of yours to anything in this life? However, if he's holding on to us, well, that's something completely different, isn't it? And that's the situation. You think you're holding on to him, but he's holding on to you. That creates a whole new motivation. A whole new response. Listen, just listen to how this changed Paul. All right? Listen to how he puts this. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. Now let me just stop right there and just say something, just a little something about this, this idea of crucified with Christ. If you understand what he's saying, it's bonkers. So if you, in 1 Corinthians, another letter written by Paul, Paul refers to the gospel is, is a foolish thing. He says, it's foolishness to the world, but it's the wisdom of God. And he goes on to explain, it's, it's, the, it's foolishness to the world in particular ways. To the Jews, it's a stumbling block. To the Greeks, it's foolishness. And the idea was, yeah, it's, it's foolishness. It's, it's a stumbling block to the Jews because, well, a crucified God, who needs that? That's a weak God. Like, we want a God who's going to conquer our enemies, not a God who's conquered in, in experiences the most, like, humiliating possible situation and execution that we know of that dies with sinners, who dies as a criminal, that's foolishness. I don't want that. To the Greek, it's like, this doesn't, who, who really prized philosophy, wisdom, sound reasoning, they, they thought, this is just a silly tale that ends badly. This is, this is foolishness. But not to Paul. To Paul, this was everything. It was everything. And he gave up everything. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live, listen to how personal this is. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me, he says. He loved me. And that makes all the difference. He doesn't need me. He wants me. Who loved me and gave himself for me. He laid down his life for me. Please hear the gospel that way this morning as we close, just before I pray. Please hear that. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved you. He loved you. He gave himself for you. When we see it any other way than this, when we respond in any other way than the way that Paul's responding here, we're playing the fool. We're being foolish. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, what can we do? What can we really say in the face of such love? Father, I pray that um, 
that you would be all, this is a bold prayer, Lord, but I pray that even in the face of all of this grace, in all of this mercy, we pray that you would help us with it. Because we just, we struggle to hold on to it. We struggle to fully understand it. We struggle to believe it. We act in ways that run contrary to it. We play the fool again and again. God, we thank you for just how patient you are with us. Thank you for how patient you are with me. And yet, in a state of desperation, we pray, help us. Would you please help us to stay in line with this gospel, that it would speak to us, that it would speak down into the depths of our hearts and minds, that it would assure us of this unstoppable, incredible, radical, scandalous love that you have given us in your son. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.